All right, we're going to start on time. I know that that seems really weird. Um, not the way we do things at Brandeis, or at least not in my class. But we will. Okay, so we're behind. Have you guys, because of, because of the snow day, but that just gave you more time to read, right? So you're actually, you've read the first four cantos of book two? I know I told you you didn't have to, but um, now you do. Uh, luckily, we do have that catch-up day. Um, have, has anyone started book two? Yeah, started. Started it. Okay. Then started it means like you read the proem. Part of the proem? Part of the first line? Canto. Okay. All right. Um, book two is, um, is, is going to be very interesting. Uh, it's got the most priggish night imaginable, and it's partly a book about, about priggishness. Um, but it's also where things, um, lots of people think that after reading book one of the Fairy Queen, they um, basically have a fix on Spencer, and you so don't. Um, you utterly and absolutely don't. Um, when I was an undergraduate, book one of the Fairy Queen was taught in the required course for English majors, and it was just one of the, it, it, it was a full year survey, and it's, uh, that's what we did by Spencer, was book one of the Fairy Queen. And boy, was I surprised when I read past book one, um, because book one works really um, well according to what Spencer officially claimed he was doing. Uh, by the time you start getting past book one, even a little bit in book one, but by the time you start getting past book one, uh, as I said before, oh, things get, well, weird. Yeah. It's not just complicated, but weird. Um, Red Cross is, he makes his mistakes, but he's a knight we basically like. Um, and book one feels like it's very well self-contained, um, that there's this little epilogue. Um, and I'm, I'm okay in assuming now that everyone's finished book one. You're actually supposed to have a quiz. Do you remember that? Are you ready for it? Okay. We'll have it at the end of class. Are you ready for it? Good. Um, we will have it. You're not ready for it? Sure you are. Um, <laughs> All right, sure, let's have it now. Get out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Paper. Pencils. Sissy and Flossie cavorting with the lily pads. That's my favorite. Yes, in book two. Yeah. Oh, Peter. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve. All right, sort of right. Um, yes, I think the other pen, both pens, I wonder if Ben Witt is still in this class. All right, they'll just have to take the hard, hard, hard makeup. Um, you can take it or not if you're auditing. Um, <laughs> all right, question number one. Um, who puts Red Cross in a dungeon? Yes. <laughs> it won't do. It won't do to say. Do you know? I'm going to ask. I'm going to turn this back around on you. Who puts Red Cross in a dungeon? Because I do know. Um, so question number one was who puts Red Cross in a dungeon? Are Are we ready for question number two? Um, who defeats the guy who puts Red Cross in a dungeon and rescues Red Cross? All right, ready for question number three? 
Um, how many days does it take Red Cross to defeat the dragon? And last question, question number four, is who shows up to denounce Red Cross after he and Una um, go to her parents' court? Okay, how do we do? Is, is everyone happy? Do you want this to be a real quiz or a practice quiz? Practice. Real. You want it to be real? Okay, hand them in. You're not getting graded. <laughs> the auditors don't have a say in whether this is, it's all practice for you. All right, so I, okay, good. Um, I know this is wrong. It's three. Which, three? One of them, three. three. Huh. Okay. No, three is self-describing. That was the whole point. The third question was its own answer. It was just like allegory. Oh, my God. It was so beautifully done. <laughs> the Holy Trinity is the third question. Yes. Okay. Who's the giant? Orgoglio. Yes, a friend, oh, I just realized he teaches at SMU. Um, a student of mine who took this class from me, like, no, because I'm going to Dallas in, in February. Um, a student of mine who took this, who took a version of this class uh, a few years ago and who's now a professor at SMU um, took as his Hotmail name or Goglio or Goglio at Hotmail.com. Um, you can, that dates him, I guess, Hotmail. Um, <laughs> So the giant um, who puts Red Cross in the dungeon is Orgoglio, who saves his ass. Arthur, Arthur. Arthur hooray. Um, how many days? Three. three. Three, yeah, not 30. But, oh, oh, I see, 3.0. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, that was, you have to be. It's a non-base 10 system. <laughs> right. Um, there are one zero kinds of people. You know this T-shirt? There are one zero kinds of people. Those who understand binary and those who don't. <laughs> I guess you're part of the <laughs> the zero one who don't. Um, and who shows up to denounce Red Cross? Archimago carrying a message from Douglas. Duessa, who signs that message. Right, yeah, the F word. That's actually where we get the notion of the F word. It's from Fidesa. <laughs> yeah, he drops an F bomb, I think it's called. Um, okay, so, um, all right, if, uh, what I'll do is um, if, you, if you passed, you'll get credit for it, and if you didn't, you can take it as a practice quiz. How's that? Seems fair. Oh. <laughs> Whoops. How much of that did you hear? We had a quiz. None. None. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> Please list the seven acts of um, helping the um, poor that Red Cross meets in the House of Holiness by name. We have a quiz. Oh, I got that. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, we will um, we'll start off. You can can you do it after class? Sure. All right. Um, okay, so uh, you really get into book two. Uh, we're gonna we're going to one way or another get to book two starting um, sometime on Wednesday. Uh, all right, where we were <coughs> in our consideration of book one was Red Cross in the House of Pride, and in the House of Pride, um, he defeats whom? Mm -hmm. And um, and then what does this is actually maybe a place where uh, the fairy queen starts being a little bit unexpected. Um, how is Hans Joy rescued? What does um, Duessa do? She's in a cloud. Yeah, and, and then she goes to um, uh, Aesculapius in hell, mm -hmm. where he's been put by jealous Joe. Right. And makes him sew the fellow together. Yes. So what she does is she actually takes care to try and save him. There's some aspect of real um, uh, devotion to another in Duessa's part. Um, the, there's honor among thieves. The bad guys are helping each other. It might be a little bit, as I say, a little bit unexpected. Duessa, up until now, has always seemed only interested in herself. And whatever um, male figure she hangs around with is a male figure she can um, exploit in one way or another, um, can offer her protection as well. Um, but Duessa seems entirely selfish. Um, here we get a moment where she isn't entirely selfish. She shows her hand um, when she tells Hans Joy that I'll be yours um, if you win. And then um, she rescues him. Um, the next thing that happens, let's now turn to um, Canto 7. So um, Red Cross leaves the House of Pride. He discovers that its foundations are built on what? Do you remember? The sand. On sand, mm -hmm. yes. And this is um, this goes back to um, Matthew. That is that um, the the fool builds his house upon sand, um, because um, it's like building the mountains east of Los Angeles. Um, you don't get a lot of uh, structural stability there. It looks grand, but it collapses really easily. Also, she demonstrates that whole familial thing with night when she says you ought to be taking up arms against this lot because yes. they've been injuring your descendants. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that um, we're now, so let me just um, say a little bit more about allegory. There's a lot, one way you can do this course is just explain a lot of things about allegory to start with. But I think it's better for it to come out from the poem itself, although the poem so much violates the rules um, that you have to be aware of these violations. So a standard way of thinking about allegory, this is the everyman way, and this is a way that we've been looking at to some extent already, is to say that an allegory will have a protagonist, a central figure, a central intelligence, a central person to whom stuff happens. That's what... Um, any story is about is that there's someone to whom stuff happens, from fairy tales to um, gravity's rainbow. Um, there's a person whose point of view we're given, um, and that 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 point of view, that person, um, is the one um, for whom others are um, objects in the world that they have to deal with. 
So in the most basic kind of story, a protagonist will, for example, want to win the hand of the princess even though her father thinks that he's not worthy of her, and in order to do that, he will have to defeat the scaly crocodile of, of Dendur. Um, and in those cases, everything is given to you from the protagonist's point of view. The princess, that's an object worth having. The father, that's an object interfering with his desire to have the object that's worth having. Um, the scaly dragon of Dendur, that's an instrument of the father's um, that, that stands in for him as another interference um, preventing him t from getting the object worth having. Um, in all those cases, it really doesn't matter, um, if you think about it in those cases, whether the prince is after the princess or a pot of gold. Um, they're both objectified. They're both objects of desire. And the fact that one is human and one isn't is really a secondary consideration. That's the most basic template for a story. Um, there's the protagonist, and then there's all the stuff that the protagonist has different um, attitudes towards. Um, and that stuff can be living or non-living. In a way, it doesn't matter formally. Um, whether what you're trying to get is money or a person or world peace. Um, it's all, you can all slot it into the objective or goal um, or object of desire. Um, and we're very used to that in stories. Allegories do the same thing. So if you think of every man or um, Pilgrim's Progress, what you have is a single intelligence, a single human being, you could say, every man, and, or Christian, the Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, and um, these characters meet all sorts of allegorical figures who stand not for other human beings, but for things that they have to deal with on their journey. Um, so when Christian and Pilgrim's Progress meets um, Mr. Worldly Wise, it would be way weird, much weirder than anything Bunyan does, and he is very weird, um, for us to have a scene in which Mr. Worldly Wise is at home wondering and tormenting himself, did he give Christian the right advice or not? That is, the, the idea of a scene from the point of view of Mr. Worldly Wise makes no sense at all. He's only there as a cutout figure. He's only there as, as someone um, who Christian meets, but we always get Christian's point of view. Um, when every man um, meets one of the um, seven deadly sins, it would be really strange if we now cut away to, um, let's say, pride sitting at home and thinking to himself, well, I really am proud, um, and, but sometimes I wonder, is, is it really right for me to be this proud? Um, Sometimes it occurs to me that, you know, whatever I have, I must have gotten from somewhere. Sometimes I kind of get tormented by existential questions. Um, but then I realize, no, it's my job in the world to be, pr to be proud. If I'm not proud, terrible things might happen. Um, sometimes I'm a little uncertain about it, but I just make sure that I do my duty as a proud person. Um, and again, that makes no or almost no sense from the point of view of allegory. Spencer does that all the time, though. 
So the point is that you have Red Cross, and the first thing you think is, okay, Red Cross is going to meet, and we've seen how this happens, Red Cross is going to meet representations of what he has to cope with. That's the first very crude approximation of what happens in The Fairy Queen. Then, however, we have a second problem, which is that Spencer in the letter to Raleigh said, this book is actually about Arthur, not about Red Cross. Arthur is, Red Cross stands for, and Guyon in book two stands for, and Britta Martin book three stands for, different aspects of Arthur. So Red Cross will stand for Arthur's holiness, and Guyon will stand for Arthur's temperance, and Britta Mart will stand for Arthur's chastity. And as you will see, it's really important that she stand for Arthur's chastity because he certainly doesn't have any. Um, but um, in all those cases, each of the 12 knights in the first 12 books of the Fairy Queen are supposed to stand for one aspect of Arthur who combines them all in magnificence as the, as the um, sum of all the other virtues. Um, but we're getting things from Red Cross's point of view, not from Arthur's point of view. So again, to just summarize a little bit what we were saying last week, what we could say maybe is the thing about good guys is that they acknowledge that other good guys exist. In other words, one extraordinarily important thing in real life, not only in um, The Fairy Queen, but in real life, an extraordinarily important thing to learn about the world is that other people actually exist, that they're not just objects in your world, um, that, they have, that they are equally subjective, that they also live in a world, that the world appears to them as a place where they too find themselves um, uncertain and worried and suffering and hopeful and all the other things that each person knows of him or herself. That's just a fact about human life, is um, everyone at some points is skeptical that other people exist, and everyone at some point has to learn that other people exist. And um, that is generally and rightly, I think, felt to be a moral advance in the life of an individual, is becoming fully aware of the existence of others. In The Fairy Queen, you could say that that gets represented as there being more than one good guy. That is, that the worst way, and, but it's a very, it's a childish way, the worst way that you can see the world morally is in a sense to allegorize everything. So a really bad way to see the world would be to say something like, oh my god, there's the person I least wanted to meet today, um, and he's coming towards me and wants something from me. God must be punishing me by having that person appear. And then that person, you know, just may as well be a chair that you stub your toe on. That person is only for you. It's as though the whole world is orchestrated either to make things good for you or to make things bad for you. That's an allegorical way of thinking. That's a way of thinking that everything that you meet with is there because it's all designed 
for your benefit because you're the person who's really the center of the world and the world is designed for your benefit. So in a sense what you could say at the very start of the Fairy Queen and in the very structure of the Fairy Queen we get a meta allegory, an allegory about what's dangerous in allegories. And what's dangerous in allegories is thinking that there's only one person and that everything else exists in order to be in a symbolic relation to that person. We know from the start that's not true because Red Cross is certainly his own person, but he's also a figure who appears as an allegorical figure in Arthur's world, and Arthur is a second person. So we know that just about the whole structure of the Fairy Queen, and then we know from the start of the Fairy Queen that Una exists just as much as Red Cross does. Una is not an abstraction that Red Cross has to um, embrace correctly. Una is a real person who feels real uncertainty and real fear and real anxiety and at some points real despair. And therefore we get two persons in Book One of the Fairy Queen from the get-go. Now the dwarf, not so clear. The dwarf can just be an object, although there is one point where the dwarf comes to life. But the dwarf, you can say, you know, that's allegory in the most obvious, um, basic sense. The dwarf stands for something that is um, some quality in Red Cross, let's say, that's present but not um, present in sufficient quantity yet. So you get a set, so so the dwarf is there and that's good, but Red Cross ignores the dwarf because the dwarf is so small because he's just a dwarf. Um, and it would be interesting um, in a maybe uh, um, low-rent Tom Stoppard way to try to write a book of the Fairy Queen based on the, the adventures of the dwarf, <laughs> um, sort of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Um, but again, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is a good example of figures who really are treated um, by Hamlet as not real. Um, they don't really count. And so he's perfectly fine to send them, it's perfectly fine for him to send them to um, their deaths. Uh, Polonius also is treated as not quite real by Hamlet. And that's clearly a moral failing on Hamlet's part. Um, and the moral failing is one where you think every person is there for you and not for themselves. But the Fairy Queen is pushing against that. And then in the House of Pride, it starts pushing against that even with Duessa. That is, Duessa suddenly turns out that actually she does have a mental life of her own. It's not her task in the world. She didn't come into existence to torment Red Cross or to try to trick him. Um, but Duessa, she has her own story, her own backstory, her own adventures. And we're never going to particularly love Duessa but she does turn out to be a lot more human than you would think an allegory could ever make her. And that's an interesting fact about her. Now we get to our Goglia. So the Red Cross Knight, let's go to um, book seven. 
Um, the Red Cross Knight um, has now left um, the House of Pride, um, and Duessa comes back and finds that he's gone, and she goes chasing after him. Uh, so go to um, stanza two of Canto Seven. So, um, the false duess is cloaked with Fidessa's name, just to remind you who she is. Who, that is Duessa, when returning from the dreary night, she found not in that perilous, perilous house of pride where she had left the noble Red Cross Knight, her hoped prey. She would no longer bide, but forth she went to seek him far and wide. Ere long she found... Whereas he weary sate to rest himself for by a mountainside, disarmed all of iron-coated plate, and by his side his steed the grassy forage ate. So there's Red Cross. He's um, escaped from the House of Pride. He's defeated. Um, Sans Joy has escaped from the House of Pride. And now he leaves and he's disarmed. What's he, what's he disarmed of? His armor, which stands for what? Um, the that armor in um, Corinthians. Yeah, which is the shield of faith, the sword of um, the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Yes, and it's the whole armor of God, and it's what makes him holy. When he put the armor on, he became a knight. Um, he, you can't, a human being can't be holy holy on his own. A human being needs the help of God, um, needs faith and righteousness and so on, and in this case needs the armor that will protect him from the world. But Red Cross is now resting. He's gotten away from the House of Pride, um, and he's resting after this very difficult um, battle. But remember error. Remember that the governing principle of Book One of the Fairy Queen is error. And what error the way error first appears is when you think you've won, you will often, maybe always in book one, be in error. So Red Cross has escaped from the House of Pride, and it may be that he feels proud about this. That is, that's just as he erroneously believed that he had defeated error, he may proudly believe that he has escaped unscathed from the House of Pride. This is going to turn out not to be true, but Red Cross um, seems to think that, so he's disarmed. And what does he do? He feeds upon the cooling shade and bays his sweaty forehead in the breathing wind, which through the trembling leaves full gently plays, wherein the cheerful birds of sundry kind do chant sweet music to delight his mind. So it's a beautiful description of him um, relaxing in the breeze. And here comes Duessa. The witch approaching gan him fairly greet, and with reproach of carelessness unkind upbraid for leaving her in place unmeet, with foul words tempting fair, sour gall with honey sweet. Um, so her foul words, she's tempting by making them seem fair, and her sour gall, she's sweetened with honey. And then, so she kind of um, 
rebukes him, and then we get this wonderful unkindness passed. So after that little tiff, they gan of solace treat. That is, they began to talk about um, how to um, make up, how to feel better. And they began to bathe in pleasance of the joyous shade, which shielded them against the boiling heat, and with green boughs decking a gloomy glade about the fountain like a girland maid, whose bubbling wave did ever freshly well, ne'er ever would through fervent summer fade. The sacred nymph which therein wont to dwell was out of Diane's favor as it then befell. So thereby this um, um, uh, spring, and um, it's really, really hot, but they're in the shade, and Red Cross is, doesn't have his armor on, and they are treating of solace, which is slightly euphemistic. Um, and um, they're, they're right by this fountain, and here's the story of why the fountain is the way it is. Um, the cause was this. One day when Phoebe fair, Phoebe and Diane, you know, are the same um, goddess. Um, who is she? Cynthia, the goddess of the moon and the goddess of the hunt, um, both. Um, so the cause was this. One day when Phoebe Fair, with all her band, was following the chase, that is, was out hunting, this nymph, quite tired with heat of scorching air, sat down to rest in midst of the race. So one of Diane's followers um, was just too tired and sat down to rest, much as Red Cross has now done. The goddess Roth, that is Diane, Gan foully her disgrace, and bade the waters which from her did flow be such as she herself was then in place. Thenceforth her waters waxed dull and slow, and all that drunk thereof did faint and feeble grow. So she becomes this, um, she's, she's metamorphosed into this fountain and all who drink from it become faint and feeble. And Red Cross doesn't know this. So we get this little one stanza description. And then we hear, Hereof this gentle knight unweeding was, and lying down upon the sandy grail, drunk of the stream as clear as crystal glass. Um, so he doesn't know this about the fountain. Um, but the fountain, in some sense, is, is allegorical for him. That is, um, it's hot, it's a hot day, and he's tired, and he, and he doesn't pursue what he's supposed to be pursuing. That's what the nymph did, and Diana punished her by turning her into this enervating and lethargic source of water. Um, and now Red Cross, of course, drinks from that fountain, which somehow is representing his own um, unearned rest after going through the House of Pride. Yeah. Like, for instance, because he stopped from the good race. Yes. Good. Eftsoon, so he drinks, and then look what happens. Eftsoon's his manly forces gan to fail, and mighty strong was turned to feeble, frail. His changed powers at first themselves not felt, till cruddled cold his courage gan assail and cheerful blood in faintness chill did melt, which, like a fever fit, through all his body swelt. 
So he drank from the fountain, and he, he starts feeling um, uh, weak and lo- like he's losing power, and he's feeling cold, and um, he's feeling kind of weird, and he's not sure what to do. But what does he do? Um, he tries to pull it off. Yet goodly court he made still to his dame. So he's still um, trying to um, court Duessa, poured out in looseness on the grassy ground. So there he is, um, trying to make court to Duessa on this grassy verge. We've already heard about the grass. And now it's poured out in looseness on the grassy ground, both careless of his health and of his fame. Till at the last he heard a dreadful sound, which through the wood loud bellowing did rebound, that all the earth for terror seemed to shake, and trees did tremble. The elf therewith astound, upstarted lightly from his looser make, that is his mate, make there means make, make there means mate, and his unready weapons gan in hand to take. Now, be as, um, how shall I put this? Um, I think a couple of you who took English 11 with me were, um, might have been in the large component of that class that disagreed with my reading of Robert Frost's Birches. Um, um, nevertheless, read this in as salacious and suggestive a way as you can. Um, yet, so he becomes all unmanly, eftsoons his manly forces began to fail. He's unable to man up. Yes, John. Um, well, the most salacious way I would say is that he, the, the drink might be a alcohol. Okay. Becomes, he's trying to uh, talk with his mate and court her, so mm-hmm. he's increasingly looser. Yep. Um, and it, so being unable to do so simply pours out his manliness upon the ground for his master base. Yes, or, um, or um, has a premature ejaculation. It's some combination of the two. Good. See, it wasn't me who said it. <laughs> it was. Do you still remember that? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> do you still agree with yourself about no, purchase? No. no. Good. Education for the one. Um, yes. So. F soon his manly forces began to fail, and mighty strong was turned to feeble, frail. His changed powers at first themselves not felt, till cruddle cold his courage gan assail, and cheerful blood in faintness chill did melt, which like a fever fit through all his body swelt. Yet, goodly court, he made still to his dame, poured out in looseness on the grassy ground, both careless of his health and of his fame. Um, yeah, so there was a theory of masturbation then, um, that it was unhealthy. And it certainly wasn't a good thing for people to know about you. Um, embarrassing. Um, Till at the last suddenly hears a dreadful sound, which through the wood loud bellowing did rebound, that all the earth for terror seemed to shake, and trees did tremble. The elf therewith, a sound upstarted lightly from his looser make, and his... What? And his unready weapons gan in hand to take. But it was just too soon. Um, and who shows up? Argoglio, a giant. Um, so, Red Cross essentially, um, it, we, we could say this very quickly, that Red, that Red Cross um, ejaculates, pours, it, pours himself out in looseness on the grassy ground. Um, if you think that that's um, 
opportunistic of me, you have to remember that the biblical reference here is to Onan. Do you remember um, what Onan did in the Bible, what he was punished for? What? Yeah, he was uh, killed because he didn't want to get his wife pregnant because it was his brother's wife. Right. And um, and do you remember exactly what he then did, where we get the word Onanism? Uh, I think that he uh, withdrew and at then, a crucial moment. Yes, and, and, out his seed and he spilt his seed upon the ground is the very famous line about that. Um, so that's what Spencer is, is, um, wants to be in the back of your mind. That like Onan, this was unproductive sex that left him weak and sinful, um, what he should be doing is being loyal to Una and saving it for her. Um, Duessa, in some sense, stands for unproductive, weakening, unhealthy, and finally masturbatory um, sex. And then who shows up um, and essentially satisfies Duessa in a way that Red Cross, with his unready weapon, isn't able to do? The giant. The giant. Why a giant? How much manlier can it get? <laughs> How much manlier can it get? Plus yes. the enormous phallic symbol in the hand. Right. Exactly. Um, so Orgoglio essentially stands for two things, you could say. Orgoglio stands for um, a rebuke. It stands for, he stands both for Red Cross's desire, which is externalized. I can't do it. Oh, God, there's a giant who can and a rebuke to Red Cross. Um, that is, uh, no, you can't do it. And here's a guy who will satisfy Duessa. It's almost pride, a pride, isn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, interesting to leave the house of pride and to meet a giant who is also pride. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, and who, who represents pride, but pride that's humiliating Red Cross now. Mm -hmm. um, because the one thing that you could say um, Red Cross wants to be proud in his manliness, but he's completely exposed himself um, in every way. And um, It's almost a punishing begetting, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So he begets the thing that will punish him. And if you go back to error, that's what happens to error. That is, error um, vomits forth the books and papers and also all the little creatures that then eat attack her. her and eat her. Um, that is a kind of story about allegorical production. Um, so Orgoglio is, um, in some sense, stands for this failed and um, wrongly directed sexuality on Red Cross's part. Um, and, he, and yes, how much manlier can you be? But then now the strange thing is that Orgoglio is about to kill Red Cross, and who saves him? Duessa. That's really odd. Um, and that's a place where you where there's, as far as I know, no explanation of that on any allegorical grounds. And I think people have, have tried but failed. Like, why would Duessa save him? Now, you could say, well, Spencer needs him to live, um, and Duessa's the person there who can do it. Um, so it could be just a pure plot thing. But when you're talking about pure plot rather than symbolism, then what, what we start doing is we start... Um, understanding characters based on what they do in a plot. That's the, inter that's the interrelationship between character and plot. And um, Duessa does something that the plot needs, which is save Red Cross so that, so that Arthur can save him. Um, but also, um, what she does 
is gives us a little bit more of a sense of her. Um, when she gets humiliated, that humiliation, I don't think we're supposed to feel, yes, good. Um, that's, a, that's a really kind of scary and depressing scene um, when she herself is exposed. And I think we're supposed to feel ambivalent about it. And it's as though Spencer here is putting the first moment of um, what is going to get us ambivalent about it. Okay, Arthur comes in, and um, thank goodness he saves our hero. Um, and then he tells his story. And what's his story? What, who is he looking for and why? Yeah, Tony. Uh, while he was sleeping with Fairy Queen, appeared to him, and he fell in love with her, and this was looking for her. Right. Um, so he had a dream of Gloriana, and he fell in love with her in the dream. Later, you will see there's a character, um, the knight of book five, the knight of justice, whose name is Artigal. His name means um, literally Arthur equal. That is, he equals Arthur. He's not Arthur, very much not. Um, but in some ways, he is going to stand for Arthur um, in a way that Red Cross and Guyon don't. And um, Artigal and Britomart are betrothed in much the same way as uh, Red Cross and, um, um, uh, excuse me, not yeah, Red Cross and Nuna, but also um, Arthur and Gloriana. Um, I should say, by the way, there's only, this is an interesting fact about the Fairy Queen, and it's probably most interesting if you know it earliest. There's only one marriage in the Fairy Queen. Um, only one wedding is celebrated in the Fairy Queen. And it's not Arthur and Gloriana, and it's not Red Cross and Una, because they get messed up, as you see at the end of book one. And it's not um, Britta Martin article. So just when you get to it, it's one of the bravura passages of the Fairy Queen is the description of this wedding. Um, but when you get to it, um, be aware. These are fairly minor characters who get married, um, but they're the one marriage. And Spencer loved writing about marriage. One of his great poems is the poem called The Epithalamian. Um, he loved writing about marriage, but he explicitly focuses on only one in The Fairy Queen. Okay, so Arthur has a dream, um, and um, where's he lying when he has this dream? Do you remember? He's lying in grass. And so um, the insistence on grass here with Red Cross um, having masturbatory sex with Duessa, that's almost as though that's the thing that Arthur doesn't do. Red Cross represents um, the wrong way of going about having fantasies or having um, solitary sex, um, solitary love, solitary desire for the person that you desire. Whereas Arthur, when he tells his story, in a sense that story explains why he defeats Orgoglio and Red Cross doesn't, because Arthur remains true to Gloriana, um, the woman of his dreams, in a way that Red Cross has not remained true to Una. And then you should be reminded of all the dreams that have already occurred in um, book one of The Fairy Queen. And how, remember what Archimago is so good at doing is getting spirits who are fittest for to forge true seeming lies. So being able to tell the truth from lies and dreams 
Red Cross can't, but Arthur does. Um, and that's Arthur, um, Red Cross showing what, what um, the, a danger that Arthur courts but doesn't succumb to, and Arthur showing Red Cross how to improve himself. Also, it's the it's Spencer's anxieties about the potentially malevolent female. Yuna's good, Lauriana's wonderful, yeah. but Duessa is the malevolent female under whose influence virility is sucked away from the man. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay, now let's um, go to, this is the last thing I think, uh, eh, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the one, but what we really have to talk um, about is uh, in Canto 9, um, uh, go to you all have the penguin or the Yale um, go to um, page 154 um, which is when Red Cross um, meets despair um, so um what he, someone plot summarize that. How does he come to struggle against despair? He sees a guy coming towards him, sort of dies, and then uh-huh. he's got a rope around his neck, but uh-huh. isn't killed, and says, I just met with despair. It was, well, they have to calm him down, but I just met with despair. It was horrible. My friend killed himself. And Red Cross Knight decides he's going to go save the day, so he goes in planning to kill despair, but then despair. Turns it around and talks him into killing himself, but then stops it. Yes, good. So the thing about despair is, again, why does Red Cross meet despair here? Allegorically, what causes that? Remember, he goes into the house of pride because he's feeling proud. Hopelessness. Once pride is overset. Okay, good. Ben. Yeah. Okay, so he's lost his way, and um, the again, it's it's just brilliant how Spencer puts plot and allegory together. He feels immediately that he has to prove himself. So here comes this knight saying, "Help, help!" Um, it's it's I, I was almost um, murdered by despair, as as my friend was, and Red Cross says, "I will fight despair," and allegorically, that's. Um, uh, if you if you turn that into a sentence rather than into a story, um, whenever someone says, I will fight despair, you know, let's say you're reading a realist novel and someone says, I have to go and fight despair now. What does that mean? It means they're feeling despair. Um, that's And um, so this becomes literalized in allegory. He actually fights against the figure called despair. Um, but the important thing is you can always one principle of understanding allegory. I should say, look, interpreting Spencer is sometimes a little bit like factoring, um, which is you try x plus 3 times 2x minus 1, and you see whether it gets you the equation or not. And if it does, that's great. And if it doesn't, you just monkey around with it. You monkey around with the partitions. So one thing, one, one trick you can do is to say, um, OK, let's see what happens if we take um, a figure that Red Cross meets and turn that into a sentence in a realist novel. So um, 
I, I'm too busy for you. I'm off to um, I, I'm I'm off to be really proud now. Um, that would explain a little bit about the House of Pride, um, or my weapons are unready. Um, so that um, explains explains what we've been looking at already. Or I'm off to combat error. Um, watch out because um, what happens if you fall into error while combating error? Um, no, I defeated error. Well, what happens? Um, are you sure you're not in error when you say that? All these cases, you can try things like that. So Red Cross says, I'm, I'm now, uh, leave me alone. I'm going to fight despair. And so on the level of psychological, so on the level of self-description, that tells you he's feeling despair. On the level of psychological motivation, it's just what Ben said, which is that Arthur saved him. That kind of sucks, um, especially in front of Una. Um, he's been an idiot, and now he wants to prove himself by showing that he can defeat despair, that he actually is a good knight and um, can defeat someone in battle. So he goes off to prove himself, um, but if you're going to fight despair, it means that you're already feeling despair, and we know he's feeling despair, otherwise he wouldn't go off to try to prove himself. He pr tries to prove himself out of despair, but the point is than its despair that he meets. His very desire to fight against despair is also a mark of despair. And so then he meets despair, and this is, um, I think, widely and rightly regarded as the most beautiful passage in The Fairy Queen, um, is despair's temptation, um, starting... Um, uh, Uh, around around uh, stanza 38. Um, what frantic fit, quoth he. Um, whenever you get a parenthesis, I think I told you this, but I remind you, the principle of changing um, speaker is so you get a, you'll get a parenthetical speech tag like quoth he. And what that means is now someone else is speaking from whoever said the previous thing. So Red Cross um, um, talks to the villain in, in line 37 and says, Thou damned white, the author of this fact, we here behold, what justice can but judge against thee right with thine own blood to price his blood here shed in sight? And then, what frantic fit, quoth he, that is, despair is now speaking, hath thus distraught thee, foolish man, so rash a doom to give, what justice ever other judgment taught, but he should die who merits not to live? And that's exactly Red Cross's question. None else to death this man despairing drive, but his own guilty mind deserving death. Is then unjust to give his due to get to each his due to give, or let him die that loatheth living breath, or let him die at ease that liveth here uneath? And we'll we'll go on with this on Wednesday. Lurie, did you want to say something? No. Okay, um, but despair's temptation is Spencer writing at the top of his form. It's really, really beautiful and really, really sad. Um, and that's something, that it should be Despair, who in a sense is the most poetic of the voices in Book One of the Fairy Queen. Um, tells you something about poetry, maybe. All right, see you on Wednesday.